you know, before the committee's work began, I think most people thought of January 6th as like a single day. In the committee's report, they tracked more than 200 attempts to interfere with the certification of the election in various states and localities. So, you know, that just shows you how how involved this thing was well before anyone smashes a window and kicks in, you know, kicks in a door to get get into the Capitol. What impact did the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attacks on the U.S. Capitol have on American politics? Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong Whaley. In this episode, students working with me in a January term course had the opportunity to talk with Luke Broadwater, a congressional reporter in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, who has written hundreds of articles covering the causes and consequences of January 6th and the House Select Committee's investigation. Enjoy our conversation. Luke, thank you so much for joining us. I wonder if you can start by sharing how being at the Capitol on January 6th, 2021 impacted you. You know, in my situation, we were, you know, that morning I came, you know, came up to the Hill. We had expected there to be this, you know, these objections to the election and we expected there to be protesters, but we didn't, you know, I I personally did not realize how out of hand and crazy things were going to get. Um, I had actually done an interview with like an Australian radio station the night before where they were like, aren't you worried about like them trying to overthrow the government tomorrow? And I was like, ah, you know, not really. There's protests all the time, you know? So I, I, and, and as I walked up that day, I was, I interviewed people in the crowd and it did seem like in the morning, kind of like a normal protest. Like people were, there are protests all the time on Capitol Hill where things got crazy and started to change is when that crowd from the ellipse comes marching down and and turns it into like just a from a normal protest into a into an attack. Um, the for me, um, it started to get bad when we heard this. There was like this loudspeaker that I was up in the Senate press gallery, and there was this uh, um, you know, voice that came over the intercom that said, you know. Basically, get away from the doors and the windows like the Capitol has been breached, something like that. And so I I looked up and I saw people starting to, you know, to grab the bike racks and smash things and people all over the lawn. And it was clearly getting out of control. Then the um, someone shouted, everybody get in the the Senate in or out like we're locking the doors. So we had to all grab our stuff and rush into the Senate. I had left my phone outside the the door. You're you're not supposed to take your phones in the Senate. There's like there's like these very arcane rules about like what you're supposed to do and can't do. And um anyway, like so we were in there with like no way to communicate to the outside world. And like I, I remember when we finally got out and I was reconnected with my phone, I just had so many messages of being like, Are you okay? Like I'm watching what's happening on TV, you've got to say something, you know all this stuff. So eventually they, they, and the senators start, were getting worried on the floor. You could see them like at one point, you know, Amy Klobuchar says like, Oh, like someone's been shot in the Capitol and never sort of a hush falls over the, over the room. And, you know, you know people were shouting, lock the doors. And, and the, you saw like Schumer get escorted out and, I did not see Pence get escorted out, but someone shouted, Pence has been removed, 
before I got in there. Um, and then clearly they, they decide they have to evacuate everybody. And so all these old elderly senators are being like let out. I mean, these guys are like in their eighties and they can barely walk a lot of them. And um, so we, and, and then they're, then we're like, well, what are we supposed to do? And like the, so the, the woman from the press gallery yells down and says like, what's the press supposed to do? And there was really no guidance for us. And somebody said like, get to the tunnels. So we just like grabbed our stuff, like rushed to the elevators, you know, and went, went down to the tunnels. Like one minute later, the mob gets to like the outside the Senate. Like it's literally like one minute later. It was crazy when you think about it. Um, and if we and if we had stopped on any of the other floors, they were already at those doors and around those elevators. So the fact that we went straight to the basement, we actually missed them. And, you know, as we're going through the tunnels, there's this sort of like phalanx of police already lining up to protect the tunnels. And so we had to like show our IDs to go through that. And um, yeah, I, and I'm like walking like right next to Mitch McConnell, who has this limp from, you know, he had polio as a kid and he's also old. And so they're like kind of helping him along as as they're rushing him through the tunnels. And we get to this secure area and we're all sort of crammed together. And it's clear at first the senators don't like all the press being there because, you know, we're, we're all nosy. And so he um, he so they they separate the press into like this other side room and um and then we all had to get to work. Like we had to like, we had stories to do. And so we started like writing about what we saw and what we were hearing. And like, I was, I wrote a story with like my colleague who was trapped in the house at the time where someone had just been shot. Like the house was like, they saw a lot more violence on the house side than I saw on the Senate side. We basically came close to, to the mob, but we got out just before they got there. And so we're like writing, you know, sending things back and forth and writing them. And um, but you could also hear like the senator's discussions about like whether they should go back or not. And, you know, can they can they certify the election from like a secure location or will they go back to the chamber? And at some point, there's like an applause from inside the room because they announced that they're like they're going to go back and vote no matter what tonight. And you could start to see things like all these guys in like serious military gear start showing up with like big, like long guns and SWAT team stuff. And like, they're like dogs or sn bomb sniffing dogs are, are out there. And that you could start to see like hour by hour, how more support came from the military, even around us, like where we were. And, and then you're sort of seeing clips on like Twitter and what you can catch on from the TV cameras where they're like knocking back <coughs> mob and eventually they clear the building and we're, we're all told to go back. We can go back through the tunnels and, and I'm walking back and I'm right next to the, the, the aides who are carrying the literal electoral college ballots, like the actual ballots that like the, the mob was seeking to destroy, you know? Uh, and so it, it was, I mean, it was like, a, I was definitely like a part of history that day for sure. Um, it was you know, it was scary at times, but it was, um, I would think I was more angry than anything. Like I remember being very angry about the whole thing. Like we, cause it was all so dumb. Like the whole thing, like the fact that all these people believe this, these lies about a stolen election and like, you know, all they had to do was like the bare minimum of research to see this stuff was all complete crap. Like, like literally like read one article and you could see how dumb it was. And but no, all these people believe this. And now, like, they kept being lied to and kept being lied to. And they um, 
and they ended up like storming a building, like fighting with people, injuring all these people. And, you know, there were a bunch, you know, several people died afterwards. So it's, uh, you know, it was, it was a really, you know, disgusting day in my opinion. Hi, I'm Cam. Thank you for joining us today. Can you describe your approach to covering January 6th and the immediate aftermath and over the long term as you've covered committee hearings and reported on some of the individuals directly impacted by the January 6th attacks? Yeah, so, um, you know, I was a pretty new reporter at the New York Times at the time. You know, I wasn't like that young of a reporter. I'm 42. But the um, I'd only been at the Times less than six months. And um, so I was still in the New York Times is the biggest newspaper, definitely in the country, maybe in the world. We have 1700 journalists. So it's like hard to know how to navigate the place. And I got hired during the pandemic. So I hadn't met anybody really. I knew like I'd met like five other employees in person um, ever at that time. And so I didn't really know, like I didn't know how to navigate the institution truly, but I did know that once this happened, like this would be like, this would be my assignment that I was going to focus almost entirely on this. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we just I, I made it my mission at the paper to like cover everything I possibly could about January 6th. And um, and yeah, and so that meant everything. You know, we did that big story with the police officers that meant like interviewing dozens and dozens and dozens of police officers about their experiences. And we did once the January 6th committee got started, we did stories about you know, basically everything they were doing, all their investigations. I had to get like good with the Justice Department and like understand what they were doing with the with uh, with the investigations. We we did stories with the committees with, um you know, different staffers about how they were affected by by January 6th. And and on the other side, too, we had to like get to know and understand like the people who caused this and like interview them and to the extent possible, like hear them out. and. Um, and it was, it, it's just been, it's been like two years of really intense work where, you know, I had very, you know, I've, I've, I've racked up so much overtime over the last two years with so many weekends and, and nights and nonstop. I mean, somebody tallied it up, but I, had, I've, I've written like hundreds and hundreds of articles during this time. I forget the exact numbers. It's just been a tremendous amount of work and it's been really intense. Thank you for being here. I'm Tina. We know that there is still more to learn, but now that the committee's investigation have concluded and a new Congress with different leadership is covering, what are the prospects for continuing to report on and investigate the cause of consequences of January 6th? There are two things still going on. One is um, there are criminal <laughs> investigations still going. So you have the Justice Department's investigation, which is now being run by a special counsel. You also have this investigation down in Georgia. Um, so those are key things to track and follow and be aware of. The other thing is, which is more my lane, is um, what's happening in Congress. So even though um, the Democrats have lost power, the January 6th committee has been shut down. Um, the Democrats on that committee are still going to be trying to push to get the reforms that they proposed passed. So we'll be following that. On the on the other side, the um, there's now a committee to investigate the investigators that the Republicans have passed. And so we're going to be following that very closely and seeing exactly what they're trying to do as backlash against um, the, the Democrats who did this investigation. 
So it's there is sort of now, now there are diverging investigations to track. Before it was all sort of one direction, but now we we will have to be tracking both the Justice Department investigation into the actual facts and events of January 6th, and then the Republican investigation into the investigators. So it's, it's you know, maybe things will slow down a little bit, but it doesn't sound like it. Luke, can I ask a follow-up question here? In a recent interview on Fresh Air on NPR, you discussed some of the decisions that the committee made about what would go into the final report. We've read the report and the appendices as part of this uh, class on January 6th, as well as some of the thousands of testimonies. Um, but I wonder if you have a sense of what will happen with the material that the committee decided not to include in the final report. So for the most part, I think they put all the big ones in the appendix of the report. There is the there is one on social media, which they didn't use at all. Um, they did turn over lots of evidence to the Justice Department that did not make the final report as well. I'm not sure if that will ever become public. Um, you know, talking with uh, both staff and the committee, the belief was that they synthesized and put all the all the best stuff out for the public, that the things that got cut weren't ready for prime time or weren't um, necessarily that revelatory. There, but there were disagreements about that. Some people thought their stuff was much more revelatory than other people did. Um, and so for the most part, what they did was they took the four reports that they had not included in the report from the various teams. There's two from the blue team, one on the National Guard, one on the uh, law enforcement failures, another from the green team into uh, tracking the money, and then another on, to, on foreign interference in the election. And they put those all in appendixes. So, And that had, been, that had been a huge fight within the staff about where this stuff was supposed to go. And so that's how they kind of resolved that. But there is, you're right, there are some materials that didn't make, didn't make final cut and didn't make the appendixes either. I'm told for the most part, a lot of that stuff is just like, just, just noise. It's like, yes, they got thousands and thousands of texts and emails, but like a lot of it is like not germane or not really on point. And so what was the point in putting out like, you know, all these people like texting with their mom or whatever, you know, like it has nothing to do with January 6th. So like, you know, I mean, at some point, I guess somebody if like, I think they turned over basically everything to the Justice Department. And so, it, you know, I guess at some point that could come out through the Justice Department. But Congress is not required to keep work product. So they do have to preserve all the transcripts and official reports. But like half written, you know, emails or, you know, partially written um, reports or whatever do not have to be preserved. So it's possible that that stuff just won't be preserved and and it will, you know, just never be seen. Hi, Mr. Broadwater. I'm Patrick. Uh, thanks for talking with us today. As someone who closely observes and reports on Congress, how did the January 6th committee differ from other congressional committees? Right. Well, we wrote um, a very long article for the magazine, if anyone wants to read it, about how they... They were assigned to read it. <laughs> they read it. <laughs> so, um, and that I think kind of lays it out. But the, uh, you know, the short answer is that they were unlike any other congressional committee in history. Part of that is because Republicans chose not to participate. Had Republicans chose to participate, it would have changed the course of this committee entirely. 
that's not to say Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are obviously Republicans, but they were appointed by 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 Nancy Pelosi, the, the Democratic Speaker. Um, and so because of that, they were able to run a very streamlined and efficient investigation. You know, all of their interviews, everyone had the same mindset. All of the decisions about subpoenas, everyone had the same mindset. There was no one running interference, no one mucking up the works, so to speak, from the Democrats' point of view. And, and that really was hammered home at these hearings because the hearings won wide acclaim. And they won wide acclaim because they were able to be, you know, concise, streamlined narratives, almost like two or three hour documentaries. And so, you know, it's much more enjoyable to watch a documentary than it is to watch an eight hour hearing where people are fighting with each other. It goes nowhere. There's no real point at the end. Who knows what was revealed? Who knows what was said? You know, it was, just seems like a mess, which is what most congressional hearings are. And so uh, th that was the main reason is they were able to um, run a very streamlined investigation because it was just one, one really one party's control of it. And I, I will also give them credit in the hiring. I think they hired a really tremendous staff full of like really, really serious investigators who did a great job with getting information, getting these texts, getting these emails, getting the as many key people in as interviews. I mean, the very fact that there are, you know, over a thousand witnesses interviewed is is just breathtaking. And then I think it was a smart decision to hire a TV producer. I really do. You know, a lot of people criticize them for that. But like, in the end, I think that paid off. If you want people to pay attention to your investigative findings, you've got to make it compelling to watch. And I think as I said on Fresh Air, like, what's the, what is the medium that Donald Trump understands best television, right? That's his whole career was built on television. Hi, I'm Andrew. Thank you for being here with us today. You've discussed how the committee's investigation revealed much more about a coordinated effort, such as the fake elector scheme. How else do you think the committee's investigation mattered? Yeah, so uh, one of the main things they did, yes, yes, they uncovered a lot of information, but I think actually educating the public was perhaps their most important accomplishment. They, you know, before the committee's work began, I think most people thought of January 6th as like a single day, like it was this, you know, attack and this this riot, but there was not um, this understanding of how long, complex, you know, vast and, and diffuse it was. You know, in the committee's report, they tracked more than 200 attempts to interfere with the certification of the election in various states and localities. So, you know, that just shows you how how involved this thing was well before anyone smashes a window and kicks in, you know, kicks in a door to get get into the Capitol. It was, and I think, I don't think the public truly understood that. We knew about like Trump calling Raffensburger in Georgia and some isolated attempts that seemed really galling and bad. But to, to peel it all back to show exactly how everything they were doing, I think was hugely educational for the public. Hi, my name is Jada. Thank you so much for being here with us. Um, my question is, we've examined more than two dozen surveys of the public. Across the surveys, public opinion is clearly divided along party lines, and there doesn't seem to be any movement and public opinion regarding the impact of the select committee and the culpability of Donald Trump and the January 6th attacks. Can you say more about what impact do you think the committee hearing testimonies the report will ultimately have? 
Right. Yeah. I think, you know, people uh, are pretty well baked into their opinions of of January 6th, and there wasn't going to be much movement. That said, I do think there's some movement in term, and I think that's reflected in more so in the November election results than in public opinion polling. Because to win swing seats, the people you need to affect are the people with the open minds, right? Yes, like the hard partisans are going to believe what they're going to believe. But the people with the open minds, the independents, the swing voters who are Democrats and Republicans, the slices of those parties that still will swing, are affected by facts and information. And so if you look at the House um, results from 2022, what you see is a very discerning voter. Um, it was not a landslide for Republicans, but also Republicans weren't rejected across the board, right? Like what people did is they actually saw, they could distinguish between the Republicans who weren't election deniers and those who were, right? Like you'd see like election denier after election denier lose those elections, but tons of, you know, tons of moderates win in New York, you know, all the, the whole slate of Republicans that stood up to Donald Trump win in Georgia. Um, and, and you see this repeated across the country. And so to the extent it still mattered to people in that 10 to 20% of the country that will still swing, uh, I do think it had an impact. And I think people were smart enough to distinguish between Republicans. They didn't condemn the whole party. They saw at those hearings that um, who was it that stood up to Donald Trump? It was Republicans. Who who was who's who's what party is Brad Raffensperger a Republican? What party is Rusty Bowers a Republican? What party is Mike Pence a Republican? So all these, really, it was a lot of Republicans at the state and local level, and obviously the vice president who held the line against Donald Trump in the end. Yes, a lot of people went along with it. A lot of people encouraged it. That's all true. Um, but I do think voters were able to tell the difference between the election deniers who are Republicans and the ones who are. Hi, I'm Isabella. Thank you again so much for coming to speak to us. Uh, we were wondering what perspectives did you think were most critical to seek out in your reporting? And through your investigative reporting, what insights did you gain into the perspectives and roles of Representatives Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and other Republicans, and kind of what their motivations were to participate in the select committee? You know, you have a lot of targets as a reporter about who you want to talk to and, and interview. You know, each year we did a long magazine article on different aspects of this. The first one was about the police officers. The second one was about the functioning of the committee. Um, so for those pieces, you're trying to interview as many people as possible to get as, as many views where you can tell the story as like a fly on the wall. So you are, um, you can go into a room and describe what happened as like, almost like an omniscient narrator, because you've talked to six or seven, or however many people who were there, you've heard all their perspectives, and now you can just just write it. Um, so we always thought it was important to talk to as many as many people as possible. And like along the way, our our daily scoops, you know, um, or the, you know, breaking the stories we broke, were often came from lawyers or people connected to Trump or to Republicans. Like um, often when we would learn about something that happened at a deposition or an email that was sent, um, 
that was like that was sourcing within Republican worlds. It was not just, you know, Democrats giving us something, which I think a lot of people think happens. Oh, you just get handouts from the committee. That that almost never happened. We never got handouts from the committee. We had to work for every single scoop we got. And so that would be, you know, you try you'd find out when someone was going in, you'd call everybody you know who knows that person. What did they tell them? What what did the lawyer tell them? You know, that kind of thing. And so you can um we we had we had to have sources on within both parties for sure. Um so Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, um, to get to your question, I, I think what motivated them was they wanted to excise Donald Trump from the Republican Party. They viewed him as a singular threat to American democracy. Um, and I would say that was their main goal, was to make sure that he was held accountable for January 6th. Thanks again for being here, Mr. Broadwater. My name is Eleanor. So there are a lot of notions within you know, journalistic ethics about ensuring objective coverage and that all sides are covered equally. Um, how, if at all, has that factored into your coverage of January 6th and Trump's rhetoric? Yeah, this is the constant debate in modern journalism is, is, uh, is there such a thing as the objective journalist? Um, and like, uh, you know, is both sides journalism bad? Uh, my view on this is the role of the journalist is to be fair. It is to hear everyone out. It is to hear all the sides of the story that, that you possibly can. And then at the end of the day, you have to tell the truth. So you can't just go into it thinking like, well, the Democrats are right and the Republicans are wrong. And that's how I'm going to write the story. Like you do have to hear everybody out. And have an open mind, and and I do want to hear both sides, absolutely. And that, but then at the end of the day, if one side is lying, or one side, or the facts don't support that side's point, you also have to say that. So you, yes, yes, you hear from Republicans, yes, you hear from Democrats, but um, you don't just take them at face value like you're some, I don't know, like some idiot who just like is a stenographer. You have to like uh, <laughs> discern what's false. And 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 what's true. And and so, yeah, I think if you read our coverage, you will see people from both sides quoted in the article, but you will also understand the facts as they're being told and what and we, and we call a lie a lie. You know, if somebody somebody lies, we say it's a lie um, to the extent we can. We know it's a lie. Um, but I do think it is important. And I do think some journalists have gotten too far away from the fundamentals where you do you do hear from everybody. You have to work to try to hear from people who don't like you. And that's tough sometimes. They don't want to talk to you. They don't call you back. They they yell at you, you know, and but you do try to hear, you do try to hear them out. So Luke Broadwater, congressional reporter for the New York Times. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for all of your work to cover both the causes and the consequences of the January 6th attacks. We really appreciate your insights and look forward to having you on grounds at the University of Virginia soon. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. This, uh, this was fun. And uh... Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time. <laughs>